Well, that uh, that was a blessing. It's good to see you all here this morning, and I know a lot of our folks are away on the for the fourth, and uh, but we're glad to see you and all of you that are visiting, and we're especially glad to have uh, little Quinn Wilson with us for the first time uh, in our service. Uh, so uh, thank you for. Turn with me to John chapter 4, if you would please. John 4. This is a very serious, there, there are very serious Tones of spiritual danger in this section of John's writing here in chapter 4. Very serious part of the narrative. We're dealing with that which is so prevalent in our own time that it is often missed or overlooked. Uh, this portion of scripture warns us of the eternal disaster of unbelief while thinking all the time that all is well. Today, people think that if they they just welcome Jesus in some fashion, just welcome him in some way, that they're believing in him. And that... Everything's okay between them and God. It is one thing to welcome him and honor him for his person and his word, but it is another thing completely to get something from him for the sake of self. Our society is so self-oriented that when self is perceived to be deprived, it rebels in unbelief and proves that it has no real relationship with Christ. The attitude of satisfying self must be stripped away. All that we desire from a human standpoint must be thrown off. Only true faith will secure the salvation that God has provided. The avenue of always having to see something bigger, something better, is a dangerous road that leads finally to destruction Because it bypasses the humble person of Christ who receives those who simply believe. James says it best. Or first, or Peter, excuse me, Peter says it best. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. John's passage here, this this narrative on the second miracle that Jesus performed deals with such issues as these. So follow with me, verse 43 through verse 54. After two days... He departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, wine, wine. 
And at, at, at Capernaum, there was a, an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. We come to this uh, second miracle that, or sign that Jesus performed in his public ministry. And we find Jesus with his disciples in the city of Sychar in Samaria with these brand new baby believers who have just trusted him as their Lord, their Messiah, and their Savior. He has been with these people for two days, and he is teach he has no doubt taught them many things concerning himself. I'm sure he taught many things that they had not previously known because they had closed themselves off to the Old Testament scriptures and were ignorant of what the Old Testament scriptures taught about the Messiah. They believed that Messiah would come, but they only dealt with Moses and the five books of the law, and there was so much more that they did not know. No doubt Jesus opened, as he did the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened their minds to receive the scriptures and taught them for two days. So after two days, he departed. For Galilee. This was the original trip that he had planned to take from uh, Jerusalem in verse 3. And of course, he was detoured by the will of the Father to go to the Samaritans, beginning, and, and because there were people there that God was, the Father was going to draw to the Savior. Just beginning with the woman whom he met at Jacob's well. Still the same today. The father is still in the business of drawing people to the son. No one comes to the son except the father draws them. We'll see this very clearly as we go into the coming chapters. The purpose of John's writings is to show who Jesus is so that people would believe in him and be saved. In fact, John uses the word believe over a hundred times in this gospel. And most of those occurrences relate to those who believed in Christ for salvation. This is God's method of causing fallen human beings to become his children, to receive the eternal life, to avoid judgment, to join in the resurrection that is coming, and to become a temple of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit resides in them and they might live in the strength of that Spirit and fulfill the will of God throughout their lives. What a legacy we have in the work of God through His Son. 
All the great gifts of heaven are ours who know him and have trusted him. Even though that God commands people everywhere to believe, the vast majority willingly refuse to believe so that they might be saved. They refuse. What we see in the scriptures here is not new. It's been this way ever since the fall in the garden. Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. They refused him. This is a scene that was, that is played over and over in scriptures, in the New Testament scriptures. For, for example, Matthew chapter 7. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to do a little Bible flipping this morning. It's good for you to do that. Keeps you, uh, the more you do that, the better you know where things are. That's why I never, that's why I don't change Bibles. I would love to just carry the MacArthur Study Bible, but if I did, I'd have to learn that whole Bible. I know this one. I know on the side of the page where things are. So I guess I'll just stay with this one. Matthew chapter 7, notice verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That word many is the word megas. It's, there's, it's huge. It's a, an enormous number that enter by this wide gate that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Unbelief is the sin that sends people to judgment and to hell. He said in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 16, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this, when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. You see, that's the sin that is the granddaddy of them all. Unbelief. Let's face the fact. People love their sin. And their unbelieving hearts are drawn to it. It's all they know. It's all they can do. There's no good that they can do otherwise before heaven. They love darkness. They hate the light of the gospel because it reveals their evil deeds. And Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. According to 2 Corinthians 4. So what is this unbelief that has imprisoned humanity in sin? What is it exactly? Simply put, unbelief is a rejection of the gospel. God's work of salvation in Christ. It is a rejection of the gospel that is contained in scripture. You've probably heard people say it. I don't believe that nonsense. It's a fairy tale. That's a sin of unbelief. That's what sends people to hell. Unbelief is the world's greatest problem. Our politicians and economists and so, so, sociologists would tell us differently. But God tells us that unbelief is the real problem. It is the root problem of everything else. There are several aspects of how 
Unbelief is overcome. I call them aspects because each one is a little different, though they tend to overlap. First of all, there is the unbelief that is due to lack of exposure. Lack of exposure. In this aspect of unbelief, the sinner is simply waiting, though he does not know it, until the truth of the gospel is made known to him and he believes. This was the case with Andrew and John in chapter 1, verses 35 to 37. They they did not know the Messiah. They were disciples of John. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. John points them to Christ. And they are now exposed. And they believe. And they follow him. There are many millions in the world today that are unbelieving simply because they have never heard of Christ. They don't know anything about Him and His work of salvation. People in this category are waiting, for lack of a better term, they're waiting for the gospel to reach them and some of them will believe. Number two, there is the unbelief that is due to a lack of information. This was the case with the Samaritan woman and her townspeople. They just did not have the whole story. And because of that, they did not believe. They didn't have full knowledge of the scriptures that the Jews had. And until he revealed himself, Jesus was simply another Jew. He was just another Jew. And they were, she was really unimpressed with him. In fact, what are you doing talking to me, a woman of Samaria? She, she didn't see anything in him that would cause her to think that he was anything special until he began to reveal to her her innermost sins and difficulties and her unbelief. She began then to understand and she believed. She had the full Story. And then the townspeople got the full story from her and from Christ Himself. So there is unbelief that is due to a lack of exposure where the, the gospel hasn't gone to a people yet. And you think about that in relation to when Paul was here talking to about the Korowai and how that the gospel had not gone into the northern Korowai ever. They knew nothing about the gospel. So when you go into a people like that who are, who are for all practical purposes cut off from the rest of the world and they've never heard the name of Christ, they don't know anything about the God of heaven. In fact, they worship demons. How can you be sure that any of them will come to know Christ? Because the gospel has promised it. That there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every language group, every ethnic group. See, the gospel guarantees that some are going to believe. But it has to be taken to them. They have to be exposed. And then they have to have the right information of that gospel. Not some kind of mixture of a, of a gospel that's not really gospel, but the gospel itself. So third, there is an aspect of unbelief that is due to lack of perceived evidence. 
perceived evidence. This was the situation with the Jews. Jesus came to the Jews. He did many mighty works among them. Everywhere he went, he was was doing something that was supernatural, something that we would say in our time is just, that's not possible except for supernatural power. And he he was doing mighty works, and yet they did not believe. John chapter 5, verse 36, he said, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus did these works that the Father had given him to do to to validate, to substantiate that he indeed was the Messiah That they were looking for. John chapter 10. Verse 25. Jesus answered them. I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name. They bear witness about me. He did the works. But they didn't believe. Now there were some that believed. Such as in chapter 2. Verses 23 to 25. Jesus did certain works and there were some who believed. But the majority, the vast majority, even though he did these great supernatural works that only God could do, they did not believe. There's a fourth aspect of unbelief, which is the one that I want to center on the most here. And that is, this aspect of unbelief is unbelief due to deliberate hard-heartedness. I don't know about you, but as I look at the world, it seems as though every day that passes, the world is getting more hard-hearted. I tell you, I'm so pleased with our Supreme Court and thankful that they have made many of the rulings that they have made, but particular this, particularly this one on Roe versus Wade and the overturn of abortion, sending it back to the states where it belonged to begin with. It should have never been a federal a federal ruling. And now states can decide what their people want to do. Our attorney general came out saying that Minnesota, it, nothing would change in Minnesota and that, that abortion on demand would be available in Minnesota. He has no right to say such a thing. He is not the state legislature. And it kind of burns me that he would make such a statement. We should be the ones to decide. The people should be the ones to decide. And the voice of the people should be what rules. And many states are going that way. Some have already gone. outlawed abortion in their states. God bless them. Hard-heartedness. It's not going to get better. You think, well, how far could, how much further can people go? (laughs) It can go a lot further. And it will go a lot further. Scriptures tell us that in the latter days, Men will grow harder and harder. Unfeeling. Sometimes God hardens people's hearts, as in Romans 9 with Pharaoh. And other times people harden their own hearts. In Exodus chapter 7, 
8 and 14, we see Pharaoh hardening, hardening his own heart. And then we see God hardening Pharaoh's heart to accomplish God's plan. Turn to Romans 9. Let, let me show you, let me show you what I'm talking about there. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. Now he's been, he's been talking about his, God's ability to make sovereign choices where he makes the choice and nobody can question his choice. Although people do question God's choices, don't they? So he talks about here uh, the offspring that came about through Isaac and and how that uh, how had, that he loved Jacob but he hated Esau. Notice verse fourteen. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God is God wrong in loving Jacob and hating Esau? Paul says, by no means, certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is God's prerogative to give, to dole out mercy on whom he wants to give mercy, and to have compassion on whom he wants to have compassion, and the other direction as well. Verse 16, so then, I love this, listen carefully to it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, works. A person can't just will themselves into God's favor. They can't work their way into God's favor. But on God, it's God who has mercy. For Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. This was the problem, you see, with the Jews. This type of unbelief, hard-hearted unbelief, is more calloused and is often found in self-righteous religious people. People who, people who welcome Jesus but don't believe in Him. They are only there for what they can get out of Him. Be that physical or mental. These people can be exposed to the truth of the gospel. And no amount of evidence from scripture or otherwise changes their mind. This is the way it was with the Jews. Jesus came not only with the works, but he came preaching the kingdom and saying to them, repent and believe the gospel. And what did they do? Romans chapter 9 again. Look at verse 31. Exit back up to verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why did they not succeed in reaching it? Drop down to chapter 10, verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own 
They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There are people everywhere today, dear friends, who open their arms to welcome Jesus who have no relationship with him at all. And this was the problem. We see it played out over and over again as Jesus dealt with the Jews. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this is, this is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Drop down to verse 31, he says this, I tell you, therefore, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. What is that blasphemous thing? It's unbelief. It's a rejection of the gospel contained in the scriptures. Turn, to, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. He writes something of this. Listen to what he says. For it is, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. That sharing of the Holy Spirit is not a sharing of salvation. It is a sharing of simply being where the Spirit was. And like here in a collective sense. And have tasted of the goodness of the word and the power of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they crucified, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that drunk in the rain, it often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. It's very clear what he's saying. He's saying these are people who open their arms and welcome Jesus in some fashion, but they really didn't know him in the forgiveness of sins, and their lives had no fruit to show it. The encounter of unbelief was not foreign to Jesus, nor did it startle him. God said to Isaiah the prophet, That those whom the gospel would be preached would not believe. Listen to what he says. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God said, you can preach the gospel, Isaiah. You go and tell them, but they're not going to believe. They're not going to believe. There's only that promise in the gospel that it re- it will reach some but the vast majority will not believe these hard-hearted people are deaf they are unfeeling they are blind and they are subdued by the deadly soul cancer of sin this is not a reason to stop preaching the gospel nor the triumphs of Christ 
Because there are those whom God has chosen who in his time will respond to the gospel and believe. This faith that we speak of is an elusive thing. It's unseen and intangible. It may, and that's difficult for us. Because it's something you can't see or hold in your hands. And we want to see something. We want to hold on to something before we commit to it. This was the dilemma found with this second miracle. Jesus returned again to Galilee. The people were not really interested in his words or in him as a person. They were not interested in a relationship with him. They knew him. He had grown up a stone's throw from Cana in Nazareth. That's why he said in verse 44, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Hmm. Well, we know you. You're the carpenter's son. You're nobody special. We don't really want to get to know you. Just do some miracles. Do some of those things that you did in Jerusalem. There's a lot of examples of this phrase uh, in in the Gospels. This phrase, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It's used at least three other times than here. It's used in Matthew 13. It's used in Mark chapter 6. used in Luke 4. Turn to Luke 4. I'm going to show you this. Notice verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. There you are, his hometown, where he grew up as a boy. Now, do you think that Jesus growing up as God's son would have been a little different than the other children in that town? Well, I'll guarantee he was different. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That is a very short sermon. But notice what happened. He read it with such divine authority that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were all staring at him, speechless. And so he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. What an announcement to make in your own hometown where everybody knows you. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And then they said, get this, is not this Joseph's son? Ah. They were, they were just ready to welcome him. And then they realized, well, this is Joseph's son. This is the carpenter's son. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. 
and what we heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. Do those things that you did in Jerusalem. Do them here. We want to see the same things. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he began to go into a a narrative from the Old Testament that really upset everything. In uh, in, in verse twenty four, uh, verse twenty five, he says that there were many widows, but Elijah only only dealt with one. And then he says there were lots of lepers, but God only healed one. And when he t- said that, they all began. To be angry. So angry indeed that they they took him and they took him to the edge of a cliff there in the town. And were going to throw him over the cliff. Why? Why are they so angry? Because of unbelief. And because he told them that the, uh, their only possible Solution, the only possible solution to their life was God's sovereign choice. And they didn't like it. There were lots of widows, but there was only one that was saved. There were lots of lepers, but there was only one that was cleansed. God does the choosing. They were more interested in seeing him do some miracles. He had come back home and they were bearing, they had been witness to his miracles in Jerusalem. And even those who had not been in Jerusalem would have certainly heard of the things he had done there. Expectations were running high. What will he do here? After all, they thought they knew him. He was one of them. They knew his mother, they knew his father, they knew his brothers and sisters. But they did not, what they did not know was his true origin. Bob Deffenbaugh gives us the principle that comes out of this hometown meeting. A short-lived superficial acceptance of our Lord is not the same as an informed long-term commitment. I submit to you that there are people everywhere across this nation that has had so much of the gospel for so many years that think they have true salvation and they're lost. The Galileans were of the third aspect of unbelievers. They wanted evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And his word was not good enough for them. Now, can you relate that to today? I hear it all the time. Well, we, we, we just want, we just want the music. Oh, we just want the drama. We just want the entertainment. Not so much preaching. Not so much scripture. They wanted signs. They wanted miracles. They were curiosity seekers. He was welcomed as a miracle worker, but not as a gentle preacher of the kingdom. So his reception in Galilee was shallow and cosmetic. To them, he was simply a sensation. Still going on today. Sensational, sensational services, miracle working, you name it, it's still going on. 
May I say to you that that's all superficial stuff. This story shows how Jesus brought the Galileans from the third aspect of unbelief to saving faith. So this sermon today is simply an introduction to the unbelief of the Galileans and how Jesus changed that. In verses 46 to 49, we see Jesus going again to the town of Cana where he turned water into wine and the word of his presence in Galilee had reached the Jewish official who resided in Capernaum 20 miles away. Capernaum was the home of Peter and Andrew, of James and John. It was the place where Jesus made his base of ministry. It was also a center for tax collection. There would have been a a Roman military outpost there. Jesus performed 11 miracles at Capernaum. Think of it. 11 miracles. This was the first miracle in that city. With such a wealth of evidence as to who Jesus' identity was, there were not very many from that place that actually believed. This would bring judgment and destruction upon them. Listen to what he says in Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, you will be, will you be exalted to heaven? He asked the question, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. When I read, when I read that and I started putting this all together in my mind, my mind went instantly to America. And you, America, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. We have had, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And we have had the great privilege for 250 years of our history, nearly 250 years of, of the gospel being proclaimed and broadcast across this country. And look where we have come to. Look what, look what is happening all around us. Capernaum had been privy to the Lord's personal works and they still rejected him. Sodom had not had such a privilege. So think about what it means for us. With what God has given us and the truth he has reigned upon us. And we have, as a nation, rejected it. So much so that our even our Congress, our Senate, made the statement that God has no place there. I submit to you that the judgment for America will be worse than that of Sodom. Because we've had such privilege. These people had the privilege. And they rejected it. Yet the Lord did this miracle. And there were a few. That believed. That's, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it will always be. There will be a few. That will believe. But they will not believe unless they are exposed to it. They will not believe unless they have the right information of the gospel. And they will not believe unless they see more in us than they see in the world. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the 
Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. It behooves us to take the purest gospel with the purest life to the most impure people so that they too may know the Savior like we do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We we are sinful people whom you have redeemed with your blood. You have given us all that heaven affords, all the blessings. So many times we are not appreciative of all you are to us. We confess our weaknesses. We seek your forgiveness. And we desire that our lives would speak of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Tomorrow we celebrate our Independence Day. But I fear that the independence that most of our nation knows now is an independence from you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of those who are lost, that they might see their condition and they might believe, they might be saved. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in your work of salvation for those who believe. Thank you for this time we've had this morning and for the blessing of your spirit being with us. We pray that you would be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.